0: Streets Unplugged, by the Luxembourg Street Photo Collective. Dear audience, uh, thank you very much for for listening in to this uh, new episode, episode 11 of uh, Streets Unplugged. Uh, My name is uh, Mark Oppelding, I'm joined by Eric Engel on the technical side. And uh, while both of us are members of the Luxembourg Street Photo Collective, and so we're, we are very happy to, to have uh, our guest for this episode, Max Pinkers. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Well, you are also the speaker uh, here at the um, Light Leaks Festival. And uh, so I think it's in two hours time. So we, we, we would have some little bit of time to, to go into your projects. And, and Well, not all of them, because <laughs> I think you have quite a bit of... Mm projects and all of those projects would probably take a whole podcast on themselves. Yeah. So we'll touch uh, on some of them. But before we do that, maybe a few words on, on yourself. So you were born in 1988 mm-hmm. in Belgium and you lived quite a nomadic life until the age of 18. So maybe you could tell our listeners.
1: Yeah, sure, sure. So um, I was indeed born in Belgium. I'm a, B- a Belgian national. And uh, at a very young age, my, my mother moved away from Belgium with me to Asia. I I grew up as a kid in uh, Indonesia, in Bali, in Australia, a little while in India. And then um, when I was 12 years old, I, I moved to Singapore with, with my father, where I spent uh, my high school years. And only when I was 18, uh, because I had to go to, to university, I came back to Belgium. Where I, where I started studying photography at the Academy in Ghent, okay. in Belgium. Um, and that's where I, I did a bachelor degree, a master degree, and I, I recently finished a doctorate in the arts at the, at the same school. All right, okay. So very well moved a lot. And, and in, in which way would you
0: say that this nomadic life, uh, well, living in different areas in Asia, really impacted your Work afterwards in terms of well, trying to well to cover different uh, aspects of society, and, and so did that impact you?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's also something that um, I mean, it's it's part of who I am. It's natural for me. It's something that I hadn't really reflected on until later. Um, but of course, it's uh, it's been very influential because having grown up uh, many different places and and being part of many different cultures um, has shaped the way that I see the world and I think as a photographer or as an artist the way you see the world is then translated into your work so um, when I when I first moved to Belgium back to Belgium I had a little bit of a kind of cultural crisis let's say Mm -hmm. Uh, even though I had a lot of still a lot of friends in Belgium from from the past um, when I when I made my first projects at the academy in Ghent i was um inclined to go back to asia to to work there and to make um to make projects in asia rather than in belgium because i felt more comfortable there for for one reason but another reason was also i mean this is something we can dive into later on mm-hmm. is that um thinking about documentary photography and about the conventions and the formats of documentary photography that i was trying to question trying to criticize trying to kind of um, dig through that, that um, a large part of the kind of traditional documentary photography is going to far away exotic uh, and sensational often places right so I was in an interesting position where I had a foot in, in kind of both worlds um, and I could exploit this aspect of going to a different place that I myself felt very comfortable and very, very much at home um, and make work there and bring that back and show it in in Belgium, so I kind of used that position very much also to to make work with. Okay. and well, yesterday at the opening, you also mentioned uh, the influence
0: of your father in terms of what well, you you talked about work ethics that you learned from from
1: him. Mm, you, uh, yeah. So my mother was a journalist, so that's okay. uh, part also also part of my growing up, mm-hmm. and uh, my father is a photographer still still lives in Singapore. Um, and as a teenager, I would often, for example be asked uh, to assist him on um, on on photo shoots he makes commercial commercial work corporate work um, and that's where I think I picked up a lot of the a lot of the work ethic of how a professional photographer works on a set about how you have to pay attention to certain things about you know the dragging around uh, tripods and lights and things like that uh, but as a teenager back then i wasn't really. So interested in it. Uh, I didn't know I was going to be a photographer until much later, but it definitely had an influence on me. Yeah, okay. because when then I look at one of your
0: works in well, which is the book called Lotus, mm. New work Lotus. It's well, it's playing in Asia. It's, well, it's recorded in Asia, and, mm. and also with this mindset of of directing and then lighting. So, mm-hmm. is this really? Accumulating everything in, in in this kind of uh, work, and uh, and also the other question is, um, well, you you mentioned that the limitations of of uh, images, and then you questioning the limit limitations of images. Yeah. So, how do you work with with this idea of, of setting up a stage, and, and rather than just taking.
1: Yeah, so that's, that's kind of where, where my story starts um, and why Lotus, the project Lotus, is so important for me because that's the beginning of um, the way that I started to work with documentary photography and also think about uh, documentary photography as a, these days I call it a gesture rather than a genre um, or a kind of way of thinking about things. And it really started with Lotus, which I made, it's a project I made in 2010 and 11, okay. with, uh, it was actually my um, bachelor degree um, graduation work. I made this together with another photographer, a classmate of mine back then, called Quintin de Bruin, okay. so we were with, with uh, two of us. Mm-hmm. Quintin is now a painter, he doesn't make pictures anymore, <clears throat> he, uh, he turned to painting, makes really nice work. Um, and Quinton and I basically found each other in this idea that I mentioned of trying to question the formats of documentary photography, and by that I mean, um, if you if you look at photojournalism more in in its traditional sense, there's a distinction between documentary and photojournalism, which we can also dig into later. Um, but traditional photojournalism, or maybe street photography also, mm-hmm. is a lot. Well, to our understanding of it is a lot about capturing a particular moment, uh, about making pictures where certain things fall together and you're in the right place at the right time. Uh, is about making pictures that are um, following a certain set of formal conventions. Often we see a lot of the picture, the similar kind of pictures. Uh, coming kind back of clichés? Yeah, clichés. Clichés, I think, is a slightly yeah. different word because a lot of the pictures are very powerful also they they can touch you they can so i think they go beyond the clichés but it's much more about what the photographer is looking for in order to make that great single picture so you have like maybe for instance um, the, the the very famous picture of Henri Cartier-Bresson of the guy jumping over the puddle which is like this moment um, decisif which has become Maybe a little bit of a cliché in itself, but this this idea of capturing that moment where everything falls together, or this unique moment that immediately disappears uh, after after the photo has been made, uh, or making pictures in golden hour sunlight, you know that you know there's all these photographic kind of um, techniques that are always applied, and we thought Quentin and I thought well um, instead of kind of roaming the streets or walking around with a camera waiting for things to happen or finding the perfect place or, or, or time or being at the right place at the right time and making that, those perfect images that the traditional uh, uh, photojournalists are often looking for, why don't we simply put them together ourselves? Why don't we give ourselves the freedom to make the pictures we want without needing to wait around? Maybe we were impatient or maybe mm-hmm. we... We were not very good street photographers or photojournalists in that sense. Um, So we started doing that to get straight to the point and make these great, well, formally and aesthetically great images or tableaux or scenes, um, but at the same time using flash lighting, artificial lighting, Mm -hmm. multiple different lights on location in this kind of street or documentary setting to create um, an artificial uh, aspect To to add something artificial or theatrical to those images, which would then kind of uh, contradict this idea that those pictures are spontaneous moments, that they are kind of captured uh, one-of-a-kind pictures. You know, so the the fact that the pictures look so theatrical and are lit in a in a kind of cinematic way Mm -hmm. uh, contradicts that they can be made spontaneously, because often. When something is lit like that, it's it's staged, it's not, or yes. it's set, or something, um, and that's the, the 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 balance that we were looking for to to also kind of self-reference or self-critique the position of the photographer. Um, parody is going a, a a long way or that's a strong word it's not that we wanted to make parodies of like traditional compositions mm-hmm. but we were looking to make pictures that were overly painterly or overly perfect or where there was always a kind of moment happening that you would need to capture as a photographer but then at the same time make them come across as very um staged looking okay and in that sense that's where it started for me as a method of working because um it it just opened up the doors to so many possibilities of how you could make uh pictures. You know, it it started to deal a lot more with the imagination of what you can think of before or what the pictures you want to make that you can go and look for and then actually work together with people to um to stage them. Mm-hmm. And at the same time hopefully we we wanted our audience to reflect on on this idea of photography when they see the pictures, to ask themselves the question, well Mm, in how far is this a real, authentic moment, or in how far is this a kind of manipulated scene by the photographer? And I think that's a question we should ask ourselves with every uh, picture. Okay. Is what does this picture actually, um, how does it relate to the reality that it's depicting? And then, so the subjects, you
0: directed them as well, or did you just put up the setting and then wait for something to develop?
1: Yeah, so in every... Project, it's slightly different, that working method. Mm-hmm. But in Lotus specifically, we had, um, and that's the beauty of working together with two photographers. Uh, it's a kind of method that Quinton and I developed as we went along. Mm-hmm. We spent about three months uh, in, in Thailand photographing and working on this thing. Um, and um, we developed a method that, first of all, consisted of kind of strict rules that we had to stick to. For each other, so that we also knew what we what we wanted, and it was very clear to each other what those um, guidelines were. So, for example, we would always want to have everything sharp from front to back. We would never use um, how do you call it the 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 blur, the the Gaussian, Mm -hmm. uh, the lens blur, Mm -hmm. because this uh, sharpness from back to front also implies a kind of objectivity, you know, from the German school of objectivity, where everything is sharp, where every detail, every detail in the image has a meaning, mm-hmm. um, and this is something, yeah, we can maybe also discuss later. But in in the kind of tableau form of photography, like Jeff Wall, for example, mm-hmm. with this kind of staged photography, um, the beauty of that is is that every detail in the picture is there for a reason because when you look at the pictures you think that the photographer has chosen mm-hmm. for that to be there, so it must be kind of saturated with some kind of meaning or purpose, right? Mm-hmm. So that's for example one. Another one would be we would have certain things like uh, often we 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 try to include a kind of reference to someone standing on a stage, so you would see a lot of curbs, people standing on curbsides. Okay on on trucks, uh, on beds, so there is always kind of like a platform in the, in the image. Curtains as well? Curtains, yeah, um, which also references to the stage set. And uh, and what we would do then basically is we would, we would find a place or we would find people that we would speak to or we would hang around. And uh, since we didn't quite know technically so much yet what we were doing, we would need quite a bit of time to install our lights, set up the camera, Um, you know, do some tests and things like that and by then the people around would kind of get used to our presence Uh, and we would kind of light the scene. Uh, So the the scene is is defined by where the camera frame ends, so a lot of the times the lights would be right up close to the edge of the camera frame and then the people would um, be in the scene just doing their thing uh, most often and then we would start photographing and we're always looking for something that isn't Directed, so the people are moving freely and spontaneously within this very controlled photographic environment, Mm -hmm. Uh, and that creates that kind of uh, weird contradiction where it's still a kind of authentic moment because the people are not really staging or posing uh, posing for the photo, but at the same time, it's um, yeah, it's very meticulously framed and, and lit and all these things, and that's the again that balance or that contradiction. Uh, that we were always looking for in every picture in Lotus, and sometimes it it's very it worked very well. Mm-hmm. Other times it's more posed. Uh, other times it's it's uh, more spontaneous. Uh, but it was always trying to get that fine balance of something as you would in a in a street photograph capturing mm-hmm. some moment. Uh, but then within this set, yeah, within this set, yeah. Okay.
0: And when you compare this to your other project about uh, arranged marriages in in, in India, i well, the title is this. I love the title. Yeah. <laughs> you have to explain it. So, the, Will They Sing Like Raindrops or Leave Me Thirsty? So, mm-hmm. And in, in terms of setting and, and asking people well, to perform or to be in this set, is it, is it different from, from Lotus? or?
1: Yeah, so Lotus, as a subject matter, um, we worked with uh, transgenders, yes. also known as ladyboys or katui in, mm-hmm. in Thailand. Uh, which were kind of our red line to, to make this, you could say, meta-documentary, in a way, uh, because every documentary obviously needs a subject, right? Uh, but in Lotus, that's that's um, that was the very beginning, uh, and up till now, every work I've made is uh, trying to figure out a different balance between what the subject matter is mm-hmm. and this kind of self-referential layer on photography, which is a very... And I think that's what documentary making is about, is, is about w- how far can you go in a kind of abstraction or a kind of critical thinking of the medium itself, mm-hmm. while at the same time saying something about a subject matter or about a societal issue or about a question that, um, that is important for, uh, for the world we live in. Uh, and in Lotus it started in a quite basic sense, katui. Um, and that's because we, we found a very interesting subject, not only because it's kind of a cliché in documentary photography. There are hundreds of projects that deal with katui. Mm-hmm. but also because um, these individuals go through a kind of transformation from, from a man to a woman, mm-hmm. where very often, especially in Thailand, you can't you can't see, the, you can't see the, or tell the difference, mm-hmm. and they're beautiful and they're very um, very proud of their transformation, and also a lot of the times, quite eccentric. Individual. So there's already this kind of theatricality in those people themselves and also it reflected this idea that we had of when you look at uh, photographs that it's never quite the thing that you think you're seeing, that you always have to kind of have another uh, layer of questioning or that there's always an appearance that's constructed or that's there for a particular uh, reason, um, was a nice kind of mirror to, to photographs as well. Uh, so in, in my work that I made after that, I always try to sidestep that question. Mm-hmm. And in uh, Will They Sing Like Raindrops or Be Me Thirsty? The subject um, there is kind of the question of love and romance in India in relationship to the tradition of arranged marriages. Yes. So this is something that's still quite uh, common, especially in like rural areas where Not 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 especially, but I guess in a a kind of larger sense, the parents still are involved in picking um, who who their children marry. Um, And we stumbled uh, in research. We stumbled upon this organization called the Love Commandos, and they're an organization that exists in order to help um, couples that are falling in love. But, from, but that are not allowed to marry because of their difference in caste, because of their difference in um, religion, in social status. There's a whole number of reasons why people um, can't be together. Mm-hmm. And this organization helps those people um, often uh, to hide from their families who are trying to kill them. It's called honor killings, it still happens a lot. Uh, and they help them start a new life, they help them uh, get married, get the papers and so on. So just the fact that this organization exists is already quite telling. Um, and I found that interesting because... Actually before that I made a project called The Fourth Wall in in India, but it's a kind of follow-up from that where the idea of romance is very influenced by Bollywood cinema uh, in India. And we all know the kind of also cliches of, um, of the Bollywood uh, love story and the, uh, the kind of... Um, Um, imagination around that and there I found in the subject itself interesting that there is this um, duality between people being murdered because they're not allowed to be together and this very Bollywood-esque fantasy of romance so again uh, kind of conflict between the imagination and reality which I think is often what photography is also about uh, images and the way we read them and the way we look at them mm-hmm. deal a lot with the imagination and our own um, fantasies we have that we project onto them or how we read them uh, that are often very far away from an actual reality. So, there, I, I this is together with uh, Victoria Gonzalez Figueras who assists me, who's my wife now, and who's kind of my production manager. Um, we went together into, into the secret shelters of the Love Commandos and made portraits of couples that are running away, that are um, staying in these places and listening to their stories. Um, and then we also made photographs outside of these secret shelters which all kind of play with these Bollywood tropes uh, and this more Bollywood-esque um, imagination of, of love and romance. So in the book, those two things come together and, of course, that um, that way of working that I explained in Lotus, this kind of theatricality, this kind of um, um, more... Um, I don't like to, word, to use the word fictitious, but documentary photographs that reference to an imaginary world ra- rather than a real one um, come together uh, and contradict each other again, this kind of friction between the two. And that's what I'm always looking for in... Um, in the subjects that I work with is that there is a kind of um, also from a creative perspective a kind of opening or a kind of freedom where as an artist or a photographer you can make the images that you want to make and that you don't just have to wait for them to pass by or 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 cross your path that it's about um, being able to create images rather than waiting for them to happen or being in a place where these things um, you know appear in front of your lens so yeah, it's it's about a different position, I guess, and I think um, I think the position of the street photographer or or the more traditional photojournalist is very much a kind of fly on the wall um, position, kind of observing mm-hmm. um, without intervening into into what you photograph, because then it might lose a kind of authenticity or it might lose uh, this belief that that's what's re- what really happened. Uh, but I think there are so m- so many more ways of making uh, photography that is a perfect reflection of reality without having to take this objective okay. uh, position all the time. Mm-hmm. And,
0: and in uh, Lotus, you also distributed cameras to your subjects. Isn't it? Yeah, and yeah. So what what would you want to to get out of this? So really, how they look at the photographers? So really, this interaction between. And
1: yes so. also yeah but um for us it was a way so what Quinton and i were doing is we were making very painterly very aesthetic um pictures okay. from a um a, a kind of uh formal tradition that references western art you know like the the, the tableau painting uh, uh conventions um and to make clear that what we were doing was a construction was um was something that we kind of yeah that the photographer is always making beautiful pictures to make that clear or always looking to make a beautiful image in that traditional sense. Mm-hmm. we chose to give some thirty five millimeter disposable cameras to some of the people that we had photographed, and we said just um just finish the roll." No directions, you photograph whatever you like and you uh, give it back to us and we'll develop it as part of the project. So, as you can imagine, the pictures that they made, also it's connected to the technology that we provided to them, obviously. Mm -hmm. But uh, the pictures they made are completely the opposite of what we did. And that was also the intention. So, the pictures they made are, for me, a lot more touching, a lot more personal, a lot more intimate, a lot more... um, in their private uh, atmosphere without following any of the rules that we learned at, at so the yeah. photo school. You know, there are fingers in front of the lens, the, the f- it's framed diagonally, there are sequences that are made within seconds of each other, you know. Um, and actually those pictures I think are very touching uh, and show a completely different um, visual approach to the same subject, if you will. So in the book what we did is we had these um, fold-out Pages. They're all on yellow pages where you can see every image that they made in the original sequence without editing them. Also, so we chose to publish all of them. Uh, so when you go through the book, you see these very kind of theatrical, painterly pictures through through uh, um, eyes of a uh, kind of Western uh, traditional art, uh, which are then com- completely in in yeah in conflict with these uh, very personal, often revealing, uh, grainy. Uh, grainy disposable camera pictures so that was again to make our point it's about aesthetics it's about uh, mm-hmm. the photographic conventions much much more at that time for us as about trying to say something about the Katui uh, in, in, in society because yes. we don't feel that we're in a position to, to do that but of course again as a documentary maker you're always dealing with the subject and you always become the kind of talking head as you are uh, um, an anthropologist or a historian or some kind of expert about about the subject that you're dealing with, but actually I think, um, well, for me at least, it's it's much more the responsibility to think about images and to think about how we look at photographs and how you know the methods of documentary making function because that's what my expertise is and the subjects always change, you
0: know. And well, those two projects you were really. Uh, you were ahead of of the setting, so you you took charge of the setting. And in another project, which is Red Ink, mm-hmm. you basically were part of the setting. So, yeah, you had to travel to. On the, it was a commissioned uh, work uh, to mm-hmm. North Korea. Yeah. So how did you experience being part of the setting instead of?
1: Yeah. So um, that's indeed another um, another step in in my approach as a as a photographer or as a a documentarian, is um, in 2017, um, the New Yorker magazine Mm -hmm. asked me to go on assignment to North Korea. And this was at the height of the tensions between Donald Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un. When uh, Kim Jong-un was going to bomb Guam and Trump was calling him Little Rocket Man on Twitter and things like that. And the tensions were escalating and people were actually genuinely worried that there was going to be a, a, a nuclear war breaking out. So the New Yorker wanted to do a story about that and uh, they asked me to go to North Korea to to make the pictures for the article. We were, it was Victoria and I together with Evan Osnos who was the writer uh, for the New Yorker, staff writer. Um, and I was very honored to be asked that coming from... The work that i make right which is always kind of uh, criticizing um, photojournalism in a large part and using you know different methods to tell stories which are often not uh, part of the the rule set of what you're allowed to do in in photojournalism which is a very strict uh, kind of uh, set of of, of rules that you have to adhere to Um, so i was very honored to to be asked that by them and they asked me exactly because they knew that whatever you would be shown to photograph would not be um a real kind of representation okay. of, of that place and there i i realized that actually my way of working still has a function within journalism even though that it's not uh, trying to show the real thing through a picture and that, that for me was it was a very nice um thing to learn uh so so having that in mind because i don't think it needs to be explained much that if you go on an assignment from an american magazine to north korea Mm -hmm. that you're going to be censored or that you're only going to be shown the good stuff right um and that you're going to be accompanied by government officials that show you around and you go on a kind of tour to show how great the country is um so having that in mind i i thought about okay how am i going to do this because i'm so used to working with People with talking to them, okay, well, how are we going to make a picture together how if if we can make a scene, what should it be? Uh, you know there's, there's always a kind of conversation. I very rarely make pictures of people without them knowing it or without being involved in in actually making the picture, but I knew this was going to be different. Um, so I decided to use a slightly different um, a slightly different technical setup as well. I brought a ring flash with me. Um, instead of the multiple kind of off-camera lights and the reason I did that was um, because I could work faster um, and it would still have this kind of product uh, advertising aesthetic to it. Right? Propaganda? Propaganda maybe, yeah, yeah okay. studying some of the posters and the imagery they make. Um, and I thought, yeah, a ring flash is probably the best way to go. And Victoria was then operating another off-camera flash as well on top of that. Okay. Um, because with the ring flash it's get, it's a technical thing but if you you can never get uh, the depth of the scene right the light always comes from the front of the lens so if you have um situations where you have a lot of perspective then it it gets dark in the back yes. so victoria's job was to light the back of the scene um but as soon as we got on the plane from china uh departing for pyongyang the uh airport customs took away the batteries of my ring flash because they were uh, unmarked Chinese-made actually okay. uh, batteries. Um, so I got on the plane and I was really thinking, shit. You know, the only reason I've been hired here is for my um, kind of artificial lighting uh, techniques, and now I've lost my uh, yeah, lost my main light. But luckily, I had brought these um, these little on-camera hand flashes. Uh, I always bring them as backup flashes, you know, these small um, speed lights. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we arrived, I kind of figured out a way to emulate a ring flash by tape, duct taping them around my lens, mm-hmm. uh, which which saved the whole uh, assignment and actually created a, a more interesting um, lighting presence than a than a conventional ring flash would have done because there there are double shadows going on. Sometimes I could um, I could change the power of different lights left and right and play around a lot more with that um so yeah there indeed i was in the position all of a sudden as you said part of the setting um where in fact i didn't have to manipulate or make anything theatrical in the scene because people in the west or outside of north korea automatically assume that uh, what they're seeing is not true and that, for me, was the most interesting part of the of the job. And after that, I made a book out of it also called Red Ink and an exhibition installation uh, exactly because um, it's, in a, it's, again, a different position. There I'm wearing the hat of the photojournalist where I'm taking an objective stance, so to speak. I'm not intervening in the scenes. But still, it has this very artificial nature to it where people question what they see. And I think that's what I'm always trying to achieve um, in my work is how can we make pictures that people question the constructions and the ideological nature behind images but at the same time still see how north koreans you know are on a daily basis what it looks like
0: and did you see any cracks in that facade in, in north korea
1: yeah so afterwards when so the the state officials never asked to look at any of the pictures because they were always right next to us when making them we were prepared for them to take our cards and to like go through the things and stuff, but that never happened. Um, but when getting back to Brussels and looking at the pictures in more detail, so yeah. in a, you know, zooming in on on high res images, uh, certain details would be revealed here and there, and that's of course the nice thing of then you know making a big print and 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 showing those. Um, those little imperfections within these perfect, uh, almost Wes Anderson-like settings. Uh, One of them, actually, after... So with this project, I I was awarded the Oscar Barnack, Leica Oscar Barnack Award, um, which brought the exhibition to Seoul, to South Korea, which was for me really... um, the, uh, the summum of the project, because obviously it's, it's now being used as a kind of, uh, again, a kind of propaganda position. Um, and it became clear to me that the South Koreans actually are less informed than we are in the West about what's happening in the North. And they were um, very, very interested and very grateful to be able to see those pictures and at at an exhibition one of the visitors pointed out to me that uh, there's a picture of um people sitting around a korean barbecue on the ground having a picnic mm-hmm. at the zoo uh in pyongyang and one of the visitors pointed out to me that um a gentleman on the right in the picture is wearing a white t-shirt that has a small uh, fila logo on it okay um and and uh, i didn't notice that but um if if you look at any of the other images in the series, there is never a logo to be seen and there's no, uh, there's no advertising, there are no commercial, uh, global commercial products. Uh, only in that picture he's wearing a Fila t-shirt and on top of that on the same spot where every North Korean is supposed to wear the pin, the red pin of the great leaders. Um, so a detail like that is something, you know, that afterwards uh, reveals, reveals certain things. That um, that I didn't obviously didn't notice on the on the spot itself because we were working very quickly often, um, or or little kind of uh, doodles of of school children on their rulers. You can see like where they're drawing and they're being more free. Um, you know, all those little things came out after, uh, and of course that's also a part of
0: the beauty of the of the series.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And maybe not directly related to your project, but. Uh when questioning images and and the limitations of images and and what we see in images, what's your take on artificial intelligence? Mm. I mean, that just adds another layer of complexity of of not knowing what the the images is really about, how how much is fact, how much is fiction. Mm -hmm. So what's your take on artificial intelligence? And also, could you use artificial intelligence in your work, is this mm. something that you're considering?
1: Yeah, 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 I'm very interested in in, um, in that. Actually, I made a work in 2017 with a media artist, Dries de uh where we made a, a, um, a camera containing artificial intelligence. It's called Trophy Camera, um, 2017, so that's already, um, yeah, six years ago before before it was uh, as much as a hype as, as it is today. Uh, and long story short about that, we, we trained that camera on all the previous winning World Press photos. And you can use the camera in an exhibition uh, and make pictures with it and it tells you how much chance you have to win the next uh, World Press photo. And if it's uh, 90% or less it deletes the picture and if it's 90% or more it uploads it to a to a website. Uh, which is again, back then it was a way of saying, look, many of the world press photos are using the same tropes. Of, you know, Lots of like judo-Christian iconography that we see coming back again and again. Um, and a lot of similar um, literally things in the images, which is what the AI was seeing in the picture. So you would make a picture with it and then it would tell you there's a man, there's you know a gun, there's a some kind of warfare related thing or whatever. Um, but since then a lot has advanced again, um, with the mid-journey and the, yeah, the, the real generative imagery <coughs> that we see today. And I think this is really interesting, uh, again, because it allows you to create images that you might otherwise not be able to make. And I, I really see it as, a, as, another, as another tool, as another um, technology of image creation that we can use um if we if we need that technology or if we find a way to do something with it that we otherwise couldn't it's um yeah it opens up a lot of possibilities again and on the other on the other side of the coin uh what we're seeing now and i think that's because we're in early phases is that there is an immediate fear or confusion between uh oh how are we going to see images that are so so to speak real uh, or or real registrations of events how how are we going to know that we're not being shown uh fakes uh? Um, but I think that's a a totally different discussion. I think that a lot of the responsibility lies with the artists and the creators and the people who are actually um making the decisions of of what is shown where um and with which intent it's not so much about um the dangers or the threats of what it's going to do to photojournalism or documentary. It's respon—it's another responsibility we have as makers to think about how do people look at images, how do they, what do they believe when they see them and, and um, how do they respond to them. So I think yeah, artificial intelli- intelligence uh, generated imagery is going to play a certain role in society and where I see it happening first is in um in advertising for instance um it's a very kind of market driven technology where you could argue you know why why do we need to hire models or why do we need to hire um certain um image creators that maybe have less of an artistic inclination but doing it more to just create the the, the, the commercial imagery that we all see around us every day this could be done by a machine um and i think that's where where it's going to to have the biggest impact first because you know a lot of the um people it can generate that they don't have rights you don't have to deal with the you know uh, licensing their images uh, you can create fictional people and i think everybody will be fine with looking at fictional models in a sense um, but anyway, I'm speculating a bit, um, and I'm very interested to see what the documentary possibilities um, will bring. And there have been quite a few projects already uh, that have caused also a bit of controversy and a bit of discussion and a bit of stir, uh, which I think is very interesting, because it's all part of the same discussion, essentially, that's been going on since, uh, since the 70s. You know? And it's really in your logic and,
0: and yeah. questioning images. And, uh, yeah,
1: and maybe people become more aware. Of how um, it's not because it's AI generated that we should question it. Maybe we should also question other thing. Yeah, <laughs> all the other <laughs> images that are out there, and and you know who's been making them and who's been showing them to us. Exactly. Okay. Uh. And maybe a last thing on while
0: well, you're giving also uh, workshops, uh, beginning of June in in I think during the Brussels Street Photography Festival, mm-hmm. and uh, the title of the. Your workshop is manipulation in documentary photography, so Mm -hmm. I'm I'm interested in what you will, what the uh, well, the candidates will, what they will show them, or what you will, what what they will learn. Yeah,
1: yeah. So the the workshops I do are always trying to be a little bit in tune with the audience that I expect, and I think, uh, and I see this a lot with uh, students of mine too uh, at the uh, academy where I teach is um, when you start engaging with uh, trying trying out photojournalism or documentary photography or any kind of photography that deals with um, conveying a sense of uh, reality or truth, Mm -hmm. that um, there seem to be a lot of rules in place. There seem to be a lot of unspoken things that you can and cannot do. Uh, There seems to be a fear of intervening, of... um, of referencing to your own position. It, it, it feels a lot that the photographer needs to be a kind of invisible presence that Mutual. just records through a kind of window onto reality and then you know the viewer makes out for themselves what, what they're supposed to think about it. Um, and in that particular workshop, I lay out a number of examples where traditional photojournalists have been, let's say, uncovered to have manipulated or staged things, whereas it was assumed that they were operating in a different manner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has caused controversy, uh, whereas there are a number of other photographers, m- maybe like myself too, who have been um, doing the same thing, but openly, mm-hmm. uh, and as part of the discourse around the work, um, are breaking the rules a little bit and essentially what the difference is in in the way you work and uh, the assertions the audience has about your work so what people expect when they look at your work um and how to kind of navigate that and i think it's important to know from the beginning um the complexities of the of these kind of rules and and where they where they're very important and where they can be bent and that's that's also what I was mentioning before there was a difference between photojournalism and documentary making. I think photojournalism has a strong rule set for many reasons because otherwise people would simply disregard any image they see in the news or in the press as being, well, maybe this is, you know, fake or or, mm-hmm. or deceptive or, or whatever, even though there are lots of grey zones in that. There is reason why um why people are conditioned and told to, to take those images for a certain kind of... produced in a certain kind of way, according to an ethic, according to a kind of... Um, because it has a very responsible position in society. Whereas documentary making, I think, is completely the inverse. Instead of um, adhering to a, a, number, a set of rules to, to assert an audience on how to read those images, I think documentary photography has to depart from questioning the the photographer in questioning the medium and the language that you are using to communicate something. Uh, And this questioning, this self-reflexivity, really lies at the heart of uh, documentary making. So it's about this uncertainty, about um, about revealing in the work itself that there are limitations, that you cannot grasp anything, that you are not uh, in the position of authority to speak about um, an absolute truth. Uh, and actually a lot of the opposite things that that photojournalism does claim to do but there are reasons for that it's not so just so black and white um so yeah that's what i try to kind of bring in uh, in that workshop so it's
0: fascinating <laughs> <laughs> uh, well i think we're running a little bit out of time and while well, you have to prepare your your talk this uh, is a bit of a preparation yeah so yeah. it's <laughs> it's nice and well thank you thank you very much it was very interesting and I think I hope our auditors also think that it is and I, I'm sure it is so thank you very much Max thank you. and uh, yes uh, thank you for this uh, podcast for this episode and hear you with the next
1: one soon thank you thanks